The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. Nobilis Health Corporation is with us. Nobilis trades on the Amex under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. I'll give you my opinion on the price of gold and we'll visit with Amanda Levette of the Carmel Boutique Inns in Carmel, California. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Bram Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the OTCQX as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much. Since you've had cancer, how does one who is diagnosed with cancer work through the shock of the discovery and then the choices that lie ahead of them regarding therapy? How do you learn to trust your oncologist, your caregiver? Or is that something you just do as a given? It's a bit of a revelation and not in a positive way when you get a phone call from a doctor or a testing group or whoever to say, you've got something here and we've got to take care of it. In my case, it was my general practitioner who I went to with a mole that was not a mole. She took a biopsy and I just kind of forgot about it. And the next morning I got a phone call actually from a fellow that was a year ahead of me at university that I knew going, oh, hi, Brad, we haven't talked for a while, but I'm operating on you on Monday. This was on a Friday and I'm like what it was a bit of a shock I have to say you know when one minute life is fine and the next minute life is kind of tenuous it is a shock now I mean I have a a bit of an advantage because this is you know the business I'm in so I was able to kind of go through and evaluate the option and go through all that which I would encourage people to do especially in in some cancers the field is moving so quickly it's unreasonable and candidly a little unfair to expect a practitioner in the area to spend the 10 minutes a day they're not helping patients out keeping up on the newest therapies so you know I was fully armed with the current state of the art when I went in for surgery two days later and anybody familiar with the healthcare system will tell you that that kind of surgical response time tells you how serious people took it. I had the surgery and all the follow-ups and those sorts of things, but it's something that you have to be on guard with for the rest of your life. I mean, I had, I had melanoma, this sort of thing that when you hear that M word, you know that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be watching because 
you're never safe. You're never cured. And it changes everything. It changed how I approached going outside. Um, even though as an adult, it's kind of too late to stay out of the sun. You still do it. And it changed, you know, diet. It changed habits. It's, you know, my family, of course, it changed their perspective on me. You sort of look around at Brad in this case and think he's kind of eternal. And all of a sudden, the next day, he's not. It's a big change in your outlook and a big change in your perspective. But it's certainly having that personal experience. And then I had a couple of other close family members die within months of that happening of cancer. It really focuses you on what's, I think, important, you know, the business side of my life, which is developing a drug for cancer. I don't need to be motivated in the morning to get up and to focus on trying to push our product along and try to help people out. Let's talk about your proprietary technology, Reolysin, which is essentially a real virus designed to attack cancerous tumors like a virus would, leaving the surrounding cells intact. Well, the real virus is a very common virus found in the environment. My analogy, which works in wet places, if you were outside today and it was raining, which in L.A. isn't exactly the best analogy to use usually, but in many places it is. If you're outside and it's raining and you're splashing water on your legs, you're splashing real virus on your leg. And that is absolutely true. It's found almost everywhere in the environment. And it's because it's a virus that affects mammals. So a dog can get it and pass it on to a squirrel who can get it and then pass it on to a cat who can then pass it on to you. It's very common. But it actually doesn't cause any disease. It's a, a virus that infects people but doesn't cause a disease. And, uh, I mean, a disease from a virus is just a side effect of whatever damage the virus may or may not do. And if it doesn't do any damage, then there's no disease. The reason we're interested in it as a cancer therapy is that, you know, in the literature, in the scientific literature, since the 1800s, every few years, somebody would note that a patient was dying of cancer and would come down with a mild flu-like illness and mysteriously basically leap out of bed, you know, and fly out the window, whatever you think you want to say, and they'd be fine. And this has captivated, the, you know, our research community forever. And as a result of that, there's a number of viruses that are under development for cancer research. Now, the real virus is different than the rest of them. Every one of them is unique. Because it's so commonly found in the environment, we just had a feeling that it would be safe. And it has a very special set of unique properties and a twofold way of actually working. The first way is if you have the right genetic profile. There's certain genetic defects that lead to cancer. And if you have the right genetic profile, then the virus, when it enters into a cancer cell, will replicate and kill that cell in two or three days. Real virus all by itself without the immune system or anything else really is effective at combating tumor growth. And we've shown in multiple clinical studies now that the virus is actually reducing tumor burden in patients. And that by itself has a lot of value. There's a lot of value in that. We've been kind of looking for years about differential effects and overall survival, which is the other thing that people are interested in, of course, in, in cancer therapy. And, you know, once you produce the tumor, then the question is, do you also extend lifespan. And what we think is happening with the real virus is that the virus, any lifespan benefits you may accrue on that, comes from it interacting with the immune system. It does so in two ways. The first is that it actually upregulates the immune response or increases the immune response against tumors by replicating in tumors. And so the body looks at it and goes, that's a virus infection. And it's in a specific tissue. And I'm going to attack that virus infection wherever it is. And in this case, it's in a tumor. And so you amount effectively like the same kind of defense you'd have against an infectious disease, a bacterial infection, or if you have a parasite, I mean, you get the same, all the same kind of immune responses, and it's targeted against where the virus is, which in this case is in a tumor. That's pretty well defined now. Now, more recently, so real virus helps the immune system by basically visualizing the tumor. It's like I'm here, and the immune system attacks it. 
and that's great, and it looks like it's doing that. The second thing it does is it actually upregulates these things called agents, PD-1, PD-L1 is what people will, may have heard, and they actually interfere with that immune response, but that allows all these new drugs that are based on that to actually work better. So you have a virus infection that's killing tumor directly that causes the immune system to do something directly, but it also works with these new classes of drugs that people are working at to monkey around with the immune system, and it looks like it's doing its job that way as well. It's a very complicated agent, but it really seems to be targeted focus right on the thing that needs to count, which is it's helping the immune system do its job. So usually the immune system is in place to protect cells, and the real virus is there acting as a target to attack the cancerous tumor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the immune system is critical. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, without the immune system, you would die very quickly from infection and a variety of other things. But the immune system, it's basic big picture thing is that it gets rid of things that are foreign, like things that don't belong. When it's working properly, you know, if you get a virus infection or a bacterial infection, or if you have a parasite, if you have a parasitic worm or things like that, then that, the immune system will target that and get rid of it, and that's what it's supposed to do. But it also targets and, and gets rid of cancer every day. Like, everybody you see walking around on the street has had cancer. Most people don't actually have the disease cancer, though, and that's because the immune system targets and gets rid of that just routinely, 99 9.99% of the time. It's that 0.001% of the time when the immune system misses it that that cancer has a chance to grow and turn into a disease. You know, when people get cancer, usually it's a disease of aging when your immune system starts to get weaker. That's most cancer patients are, unfortunately, my age or older, and you know, your immune system starts kind of dying off when you get older. The immune system does some other things, though, that are caught, you know, could cause problems. I mean, you have all these autoimmune diseases, and that's like some of the arthritis type arthritic conditions and things like that. And those are as a result of the immune system mistaking your own body as being foreign. It shouldn't be there so that the immune system actually attacks your own tissues, like healthy tissues, and that's how you get these diseases. It's a big area in medicine, either turning the immune system away from doing the wrong thing or trying to amplify the good things that it does. And what real virus does is actually amplify the good things. It actually causes the immune system to go, oh, there's a tumor that I missed. I didn't see that before. I'm going to go after it. That's quite a unique and special thing. So we've identified that a weakened immune system is a potential precursor for cancer. What are some of the things that weaken the immune system in conjunction with age or separate from that stress? Diet, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And this isn't meant to scare people, but it might. If you have a sleepless night for whatever reason, you're worried about something, you just didn't sleep well, your neighbors were making noise all night and you couldn't sleep, whatever the reason, in the morning you are technically immune suppressed. It just takes as little as one sleepless night can actually reduce your immune system. And people know this intuitively. I mean, people are always talking about how I was tired and then I got a cold or I got run down and I got the flu. That kind of day-to-day -day stress and lack of sleep, really bad sleeps. You know, if you take an overnight flight on an airplane where, you know, you got the altitude issues and it's dry and you didn't sleep well, all those things cause low-grade immune suppression, but to the point where people actually can get sick, and they do. When you get older, basically you're like that all the time. And I mean, as your body ages, so does your immune system. There's quite a bit of work going on in our community uh, looking at ways to kind of selectively boost the immune system as people age to try to prevent that from happening. And, you know, and that's mostly directed at trying to make sure you don't get infection. One of the leading causes of deaths for people, again, my age and older is getting things like pneumonia and things like that. And it's a real risk factor. So I mean, if you just boost the immune system gently in however you do it, that has a lot of medical benefits to reduce infection. But it also has a nice side effect of probably reducing cancer rates as well. That's fascinating. 
I didn't know that. So one of the most important things you can do to protect your immune system is to eliminate stress and create a peaceful, undisturbed sleep environment. Oh, absolutely. And taking regular exercise, and it doesn't have to be hyper-vigorous exercise. I mean, I'm still surprised at how little exercise reduces things like Alzheimer's risk dramatically. I'm about to sound Canadian here. If you go on three one-kilometer walks a week, so three little over half-mile walks a week, which isn't very much walking, I mean, you reduce your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's by a huge percentage just by walking. You don't have to go out and run a marathon to get the, the health benefits from that, but you get the same thing in your immune system, just eating well, watching your weight, Getting sleep and taking mild exercise has just huge benefits at risk reductions and all sorts of things, including cancer. And then you're legitimately tired so you can get a full night's sleep. I mean, I have trouble sleeping, which doesn't surprise anybody. And my doctor's advice to me was don't drink coffee like the way you do in the evening because I drink buckets of coffee. I mean, I just live on coffee. And get exercise in the evening, which is normally viewed as a taboo. You know, you shouldn't exercise in the evening. But if I exercise in the evening and I stay away from caffeine, I sleep beautifully. Boy, do I feel good the next day. So it's pretty immediate. It's a good thing. Interesting. I'm glad we're able to provide this information to our listening audience, Brad. I'm one of those people who likes to hop on the treadmill at night. I didn't know that it was helping me protect my immune system by assisting and giving me a good night's sleep, which I always get after doing so. Let's talk about the investment potential of this company. I was reading the other day where biotech giant Amgen was earmarking about $1 billion towards a buyout candidate. Will Oncolytics Biotech be that kind of buyout target in the near future? It's hard to say if we'd be a target for Amgen specifically. I mean, Amgen's a very good company. They have very good people working for them, and they will go out and find a company or companies, and more likely the case, that fits into their profile, either into an area they want to go into that's new or bolsters areas that they're already working in. So if we fit that profile, then Amgen will come and talk to us. And if we don't fit that profile, then Amgen will be talking to other people. Amgen has bought numerous companies in the past and has gotten programs from other people in the past. I mean, their program that resulted in the first virus being approved for cancer therapy in the United States was actually a result of them buying a company from the U.K., called BioVex. So they have a long track record of working in this area. Will you wait for the maximum share price possible beforehand when considering buyout or takeover options? That's what we're in business for is, is to maximize shareholder value. Different people have different perspectives on this, but I mean, if we get a legitimate buyout offer, we will always take it to our shareholders. I've never been one to get in the way of shareholders deciding offer is legitimate or not and encouraging them to vote however we feel. They should get the chance at voting on it. My personal view would be to wait till we get to a maximum share value within our program before that event happens, and, and that's how we're planning our program. You've been in the business a long time, and of course, you're a doctor. Let's look at your company as objectively as possible. With all the research that you've done and all the clinical trials completed and patients that you've treated, around 1,100 of them so far, how advanced in cancer research and treatment is Oncolytics Biotech compared to other companies in the sector with a comparable market cap? Well, there's a big spectrum of market caps with companies all at the same levels and quite a discontinuity of market caps. And I think when people look at companies like ours, they are looking to see definitive clinical data before they actually participate in the way that we'd like them to participate in, which is being a shareholder. And that's really, I think, the differentiation on, on market caps and companies in biotech right now is the companies that have definitive, very clear-cut 
clinical data, it doesn't matter what stage of development they're at, get better valuations at ones that have either complicated or need more work. Certainly, as we've talked about, I mean, real virus and real license is a very complicated agent. So I think people are really waiting to see more clear-cut data. But um, I mean, I know companies that have products that are sitting in front of the FDA waiting for product approval that have market caps less than their cash. It's really all over the place. You just have to face that good clinical data and getting product approval in the end will result in, you know, a valuation that all your shareholders will be happy with. And uh, kind of bumps in the road along the way or bumps in the road along the way. But you haven't had too many of those bumps from what I can observe. We have an agent in every clinical study that we've done has shown positive outcomes, but it's also showed complications. Uh, subsequent clinical studies that we do approach those complications to make sure that they work. For example, I mean, thus finally discovering the involvement of the immune system and the very complicated involvement with our agent is sort of at the end of the program, not at the start of the program. And so people are waiting right now. They're saying, okay, real virus kills tumors really well, Brad. How does the immune system work on working with overall survival? I mean, how is that working out? And I think once we answer that question, then I think people will be far more comfortable about participating in our company. And I think that's a pretty common picture that you see with agents that aren't straightforward. People like to have that kind of certainty before they invest. There's thousands of biotech companies now. That's nice from an investor perspective because that gives you a menu of things that you can take a look at and say, well, this one's really certain. This one looks great, but it's going to be a while. This one I don't have a clue about. And they make their investment decisions based on, usually on a package approach to looking at the industry. Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm glad we were able to take a look at cancer prevention as well. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Well, thank you very much, Alice. Have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading on the TSX as ONC and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ONCY. That's ONCY. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Patrick Yoder, the Vice President of Sales for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to, and in the U.S. as HLTH. Noblest Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for health care delivery. Noblis, under its previous name, North Star Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized health care services in seven states. Patrick, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks, Ellis. I'm glad to be here. What are the responsibilities accompanying your position at Nobilis? Well, I am the Vice President of Sales and primarily concentrate on physician recruitment and relationships. How does that translate into revenue? Our main focus is to go out and recruit physicians to utilize our facilities. 
and we do that through a number of different programs, primarily the marketing side. So they come over, they do their surgical procedures at our facility, and when they do those procedures, that's when we bill the insurance companies and generate the revenue. So majority of our revenue at Nobilis is built around our surgical operating room. In our ASCs, our ambulatory surgery centers, and our hospitals. And our hospital is a surgical hospital. The more cases that my team can generate, the more revenue. So you have a team of individuals that are recruiting physicians, surgeons, that have a reputation of following that can bring something to the table with regard to using your surgical centers, right? That's correct, Ellis. We really primarily are in three markets, Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale, and each market has a team of sales representatives that go out and try to recruit physicians to utilize our facilities. And then each market also has a team of physician liaisons that go out, and once the physician comes on and decides he wants to start doing cases, they effectively onboard the physicians and get them used to our facilities and there's some equipment we have to buy for each physician so they primarily handle that and then maintain a long-term relationship and the folks interact with the physicians on a day-to-day basis. Well I guess they would have to because after they recruited the physicians it's your responsibility as a company to ensure that their practice grows within the noblest umbrella. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis, and that is what their job is primarily focused on, is making sure they're happy, and if there's a different way we can work with them, we explore that option as well. Give us an idea of your background, Patrick. How did you find your way to working with Nobilis? I have always been in healthcare. I started off in pharmaceutical sales, spent a number of years with Pfizer, and then a natural progression from pharmaceutical sales is medical device sales. I worked for a minimally invasive spine company in Nashville, Tennessee for a number of years. And then when my wife and I started having kids, we decided to get closer to her family, which often happens. I took a job with Intuitive Surgical as a sales representative here in Houston, Texas. And Intuitive Surgical is the maker of the Da Vinci Surgical Robot. And I spent four years with Intuitive selling robots in the Houston area, and the Texas Medical Center was where I was primarily based out of. And then I got into sales management with Intuitive and actually managed their capital sales for most of Texas. So the Houston area and the Rio Grande Valley all the way out to West Texas. I was approached by Barry Kraft, Katz, one of the recruiters, and Don Kramer, Dr. Kramer. They called me in and kind of explained what Nobilis was doing. And they approached, and they needed somebody to come in and start a sales force and grow their business. Because they had a great message. They had a great plan with differentiating themselves among the other ASCs. They just didn't have anybody to go out and let the world know and let the surgeons and the physicians in the community know. So they needed some competent feet on the street. So they brought me in about a year ago, and since then we have built a team. I think we've got, at last glance, I think we have 15 sales representatives. There's 15 folks that are in the sales department within Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale. Let's talk about robotics. You mentioned your history in that arena. How important a role does robotics play in Noblest Surgical Centers? It's interesting. Robotics and medicine, I think we all agree there's certainly a place, and it's the future is getting closer and closer. So I really feel like robotics is certainly here to stay. It only enhances a patient's ability to have a minimally invasive 
procedure. Where it fits in the ASC environment, it's still up for debate. We've elected not to invest in the Da Vinci robot and robotics at this point because most of the data that's available and most of the utilization within robotics is for more complex surgery. It's such a significant investment at this time, it's really hard to justify that type of acquisition for that something that's not really in our sweet spot. Most of our centers are outpatient surgery centers. We kind of leave the extremely complex surgeries that the robot's involved in, we leave those up to the big hospitals. So your focus, to track back a bit, is to grow the team of professional recruiters targeting physicians that could benefit from a noblest facility. At what point do you hit market saturation? Is there an endless upside to recruiting? I mean, at what point can you say, we're done here? There's really not. I mean, there's not an end point to this. I mean, you look at the Houston market. You know, Ellis, I think there's 10,000 physicians in Houston. I would love to reach all of them because we can have a conversation with all 10,000 physicians. But really, my team is focused on physicians that have been a part of outpatient surgery centers before. Those folks usually are orthopedic surgeons, spine, ENT, pain management, some general surgery. Those are the primary focus areas for my team. The job's never done. We've barely scratched the surface. I will say, OLS, we've gotten now to a point where this reminds me of when I was with Intuitive in some ways. We've crossed a chasm, so to speak. Ellis, where we are not as actively recruiting physicians now because of our marketing efforts and because that's what we've become known for, we're at a point where physicians are now contacting us. And we're in a good position to say, you know what, we'd like to work with this physician and maybe this physician's not a great fit. So we can ensure the highest quality and return on the investment. So the marketing team, in conjunction with your sales staff, has created great market awareness, and these physicians are contacting you to use the noblest facilities. Absolutely. I mean, they've done an incredible job. And I tell them that when I'm interviewing, people always ask, well, there's a specific personality that does really well in this line of sales, and that's from the medical device background. Most of my sales team has a medical device background. And so one of the first questions they ask is, what product would I be selling? Well, the difference is there's not so much a product, but really a service that we can provide and a differentiator in the marketplace. And that's where the marketing comes into play. And people are just wild, especially physicians, are just wild when we go through our marketing capabilities. There's no one else in this space that are in Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale for sure. There's no one else doing this quite like we are. No one has the marketing capabilities and infrastructure that we have. Most of the competition that's out there has the same old model where they have physician partners. Well, that model has been shown to fail time and time again. We can do that. We can do all the other things that everyone else can do. But where we really differentiate ourselves is we have the unique ability to increase a physician's patient inflow through our marketing service. And in today's climate, 
that's incredibly important to a physician is especially a lot of these specialties where they're seeing their patient volume dwindle and it's a little bit of a crunch, but we can offer them the opportunity to increase their patient volume. There's very few ASCs and hospitals that really can say they do that. Would you say that your method of doing business is unique to Nobilis? And I'm talking about on a national scale. Yes, it is. I've yet to come across a physician that says, oh, well, this hospital or this surgery center is already doing this to the scale that we can. They've tried their hand at a few commercials. Maybe they've got a web presence. But again, it comes back to the marketing infrastructure that we've built. And some of it we had in place before the APHIS merger, but when we acquired APHIS, it took us to a completely different level where every dollar spent and every patient that calls into our call center is tracked. We know where everything is. So when a physician asks, well, where is this patient or how do my numbers look, we can pull it right up and show them, hey, this is how many patients we added to your practice over the last month or two. No one else has those capabilities. If they do have those capabilities, they're not effectively communicating and marketing in our spaces. Let me ask you what I've asked other principals and Nobilis. Given the success you've been having in the Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale areas, why wouldn't you take this method of service and success to other parts of the country. Are you going to make sure you can cover and manage the large areas you already placed in before increasing your national footprint? That's my understanding. I mean, Texas is such a great state to get started and improve success. I mean, we could be a very successful business if we just stayed in Texas and in Scottsdale, but I, that's not the plan. I mean, this model is reproducible, and we can certainly take it to different markets, and it should be. There's no reason to think it wouldn't be as accepted as that has been in Texas and Arizona. I think within the last year, we've branched out of Texas and are starting to see some success in Arizona. So I think we'll continue to monitor that success in Arizona and continue to grow in Texas. And then at some point, I can't imagine us not being in different markets in different states. In some ways, with the Aethis brand, we already are in other states. They do have some existing relationships in, I believe, Detroit, New Jersey, so they've got relationships in other states. What do you feel your strongest suit is when you're prospecting for new growth through the program you've just outlined? I think the biggest thing is what my salespeople and what I'm armed with is when I go out and recruit physicians and maintain these relationships is the unique ways that we can market physicians, and that's our strong suit. Our core competence is within the marketing. I'd say that that is what separates us from everyone else. You must have a close relationship with Chief Marketing Officer Adam Arnett then. We are developing one, yes. Adam and I are, are starting to talk on a daily basis and that is a, um, something that was really interesting with that merger. You just found two companies that it fit perfectly. They filled some of our gaps and we filled some of their gaps. And for us to pull off within, I think it was a four to six time frame where almost 90% of the patients that were in the Athos brand, six weeks within closing, were already coming over to our facility. So I think that speaks to the team more than anything. Everyone bought into what we were trying to do, and we all pulled in the, the same direction and accomplished. When we set out to do it, I really had my doubts that we were able to going to be able to capture 90% of those patients before the end of the year. But sure enough, we were able to accomplish that. So Adam and I have, have started talking on a very frequent basis. In fact, we hold weekly calls with ASIS and ASIS Legacy Management and Nobilis Management just to make sure we're all pulling in the same direction.
Well, Patrick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I thank you for joining us on the program. Ellis, thanks for having me. I've been chatting with Patrick Yoder, Vice President of Sales for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.TO. That's NHC.TO. And in the U.S. as HLTH. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com and download the entire program on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's EllisMartinReport.com. This is Ellis Martin. Today I'm on the road in beautiful Carmel-by-the-Sea, and I'm staying here at the Cypress Inn, which is one of a collection of boutique inns, the Carmel Boutique Inns, and I'm with the director of the Carmel Boutique Inns, Amanda Levette. Welcome to the Opportunity Show. Thanks, Ellis. Happy to be here. This is an incredible place to be. It's my first time up here, and I brought my camera because many of our listening audience know that I'm a photographer, and it's a passion, it's a profession, and it's also a hobby, but more than a hobby. And I'm a guest of the properties, and one of the things that I'd like to say first off is thank you for having me here. Well, thanks for being here. You've done some great work for us. Appreciate it. We're having breakfast this morning, and the breakfast is called Continental Breakfast, but really it's full-blown, and I'm sitting in the foyer of the hotel with Amanda, and I made an error by calling it a hotel. It's not a hotel. The Cypress Inn is an inn. And why is that, Amanda? Well, it has more personal aspect to it. It's actually a boutique inn, and it's still full service, but you come in, and, and you have the full Continental Breakfast, as he says, a bit more than Continental Breakfast, with, you know, fresh eggs and potatoes and... You really, really care about our guests. You see the same familiar faces, and you just get to know everybody. When you come back year after year, you know the people that are there, the innkeeper, the managers, the front desk. It's a neat aspect. It's really an inn in the historical context of being an inn and not a hotel where you really do know everybody. They know you. One thing I noticed at the bar last night is not only with me but with all the guests, the bartender was really inquisitive and asked everyone personal questions that made them think and me think that she cared about our lives more or less. That must have been Thora. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's very good at that. And she's, uh, she's actually from Iceland. And uh, another neat thing about our inns is we have people from all over the world, uh, El Salvador, Brazil, Norway. And, yeah, they actually care about the people that stay here. They're actually curious. And when they ask you those questions, they, they really want to know the answers. One thing which is really unique and unusual for me, and I've stayed in facilities all over the world, is an inn or a, a lodge will say it's pet-friendly. You've got a yappy hour here, which is a pet version of a happy hour, and it's virtually every day, and you can literally bring your pets in here, hang out, have a drink, have something to eat, and and your pets are completely welcome and comfortable, and I've never seen anything like it before. It's actually not that much of a new concept, at least for my family. My dad and and the uh, actress Doris Day came in, as well as her son, uh, Terry Melcher, who's a famous producer for for the Beach Boys, actually. They came in in 19... I think it was about 86, and decided to buy the inn. Doris didn't care about the design of the rooms. She didn't care about about the procedures. Nothing like that. All she cared about is when people came with their pets, would they be happy? From then on, all of our properties, Cypress Inn, Vagabond's House, the Lamplighter Inn, and Forest Lodge are all pet-friendly properties. When you come in, we present a 
nice pet blanket that can either, you know, fold into a pet bed over our furniture. And we give them full service, you know, and you can dine with your dog. It's not obnoxious is what I'm trying to say. You know, you don't have the dog sitting at your table, but it it's really creates an incredible environment. And it's something that I would, you know, if I ever did more ends, I would carry along with me. And the cleanliness factor, when you think of pets and animals, you wonder, well, is there any residue of, of them being here for the next guests that are going to come without pets, more or less. And I would have to say, as a resident here for the past two weeks, absolutely not. All the linen's completely gone through. The, the floors are scrubbed with uh, ammonia, and it, it couldn't be cleaner. There's no hotel smell here, more or less, anywhere in your facilities. It's, it's like being at an inn, being at a home away from home. One thing about one of your properties, the Vagabond's House, if you're an artist, it's a great place to, to come and create and work, which, of course, I've been doing since I've been here. We've actually followed that because of uh, an old author, Don Blanding. He was a Hawaiian author that would come and stay at the Vagabond's house for months at a time. He would sit down and write novels and poems, and uh, he even wrote a poem about, about the Vagabond's house, actually several. So this past year, we decided, you know, let's really emphasize that. So every room has a desk, and every room is presented... But with an artist who is for sale, a community artist, we take no commission on it. And so every room, different art, different artists, and, and it's really just to support the community and support the arts. It's pretty neat, and gallery support from it as well. Well, if you've never been to Carmel, and I never have. I've been to Monterey, but never to Carmel. There are scores and scores of galleries and shops here, and it's absolutely beautiful, and the art is amazing. This is a center for artists and for those who collect and purchase art. It is. It is. Um, I think we have more galleries than even restaurants in, in Carmel. <laughs> um, I wouldn't quote me on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, Carmel actually started as, um, well, between development and art. Uh, people from San Francisco came down, and we have many famous artists that um, would come through here. Van Gogh, there's the Van Gogh table at Casanova's. Um, the Weston brothers, who did tremendous photography and worked with Ansel Adams. Oh gosh, there's so many. Salvador Dali came, even stayed at the Forest Lodge. Uh, speaking of, we also had Albert Einstein. One of the buildings there was actually Edward Weston's studio. So it's pretty neat stuff. Well, that is no small name at all. <laughs> I'm hoping to migrate over there during my stay and do my my lifetime masterpiece, whatever that would be, over there <laughs> while I'm here. Another unique factor about your properties, the Carmel Boutique Inns, the Lamplighter Inn, the Cypress Inn, Forest Lodge, and Vagabond's House, is how eco-friendly it is. And it's not just a statement. You really care about how the environment is treated by your properties and the people that stay there, right down to the uh, the water bottles, which are glass, like they should be, and not plastic, <laughs> and refillable every day, uh, would you care to enlighten us about uh, aspects of these properties in that area? Well, it just comes natural in Carmel. It's just such a, a, a beautiful and organic place. It's also a walking town. So when we decided that we would become you know, more eco-conscious, it seems so natural and, and easy. And, and nowadays, it's not so bad. You know, when you, whenever we have to make a decision, whether it's a, a remodel decision or we're looking at our, the soaps we use, the, the products we use, we just make the, the eco-friendly decision. For instance, Forest Lodge, when we remodeled it, instead of getting normal insulation, we brought in recycled denim. So there's actual recycled jeans inside your walls. When I moved some, some 
some walls around and I removed some doors. We kept these old redwood doors. I couldn't reuse them again. They weren't proper for a hotel. So instead, we chopped them up and built beautiful, beautiful redwood shelves and entertainment center out of, out of these doors. You know, other things, you know, we just use sustainable products like, you know, wool, carpet and rugs. Um, you brought up the water, which is neat. We, we do reverse osmosis filtered water. And then we also have canteens that you can purchase just to, to encourage you not to use water bottles. And um, fleeces that are made of 100% recycled water bottles and that's just to compensate for all the water bottles they've used in the past. <laughs> now of course at the Vagabond's house you have breakfast that are served at your door every day and I noticed all the food that you you have here to my knowledge has been purchased from local producers and growers. Uh, we do what we can especially with the Vagabond's house the majority of what you get for your breakfast um, is from the farmers market. So it's just a, another way to support our community. You know, it's also another personal aspect, too. You know, the, the fruit's hand-picked. You know, you, you know that it, it's of the highest quality, and, and we bring it to your door. Another, another specialty about an inn. You know, wake up in the morning, and there's someone presenting you with breakfast in bed. And that's about how it is. You just pick up the phone. You, you dial the front desk. Uh, instead of, hello, how are you? What can I do for you? Is good. It's more or less, good morning. Would you like your breakfast now? And my answer is yes. And the response is, it's on its way. And it is within minutes. It is. It is. Um, mornings are very, very busy trying to get breakfast out to people. And you know, everyone wants it between 8 and 8.30. So if you do come stay with us, try you know, 7.30 or 9.30. <laughs> but um, it's... You know, it's, it's just a special, special aspect that we, we really like to see people just happy and excited about these little unique things that we can offer them. Now, there's a lot of folks who really like all the frills and accoutrements when they travel. And I've got to tell you, the Cypress Inn lacks for nothing, right down to the jet tub, which is like a full-body massage. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the jet tubs are pretty incredible. And if you stay with one of, in one of our suites, you get just an immense circular tub, uh, jet, jet tub, very romantic, you know, high ceilings. Um, it's, it's a beautiful property. It is our, more of our luxury property um, compared to the other three. You know, something that's representative of, of both my father and, and Doris Day. Well, that's where I heard Sentimental Journey, not sung by Doris, but one of your, one of your other fantastic performers in the front lounge area. It's more or less like a piano bar. It is a piano bar, especially on the weekends. So you've got first-class entertainment here. If you feel like being casual, you can be casual. If you want to throw your suit on or evening dress on, this is the place to do it at the Cypress Inn. Yeah, I think that's, you know, partially because of the dogs. You know, people will come in and they can, for, for Yappy Hour, for instance, they can sit here with their dog and on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, we have that live jazz and you can come in and relax on the couch and and be listening to this incredible jazz. Something, by the way, we really fought for. There was a, a long period of time about, oh gosh, I can't say how many years, but that Carmel didn't allow live music in the evenings. And it was actually uh, Bobby Richards and the Cypress Inn that really fought to have live music here, and we were the first to do so. Well, this is just a brief look at you and all of your properties here. We've been speaking with Amanda Labette, the director of inns for the Carmel Boutique Inns. What's the best way to find out more information on any of your properties, Amanda? Well, the easiest is carmelboutiqueinns.com. You can also call us personally, and each inn does have its own private website, uh, cypress-inn.com, carmellamplighter.com, carmelforestlodge.com, and vagabondshouseinn.com. Quite easy. <laughs>
Amanda, thanks so much for joining us today on the Opportunity Show. Well, thank you. This was fun. I'm Ellis Martin reporting from Carmel by the Sea. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and this is only my opinion. Here's what I think. Gold has been overbought for years. It has no business being above $900 an ounce, let alone eleven or $1,200 an ounce. I predicted almost a year and a half ago that it would fall back to the $900 level, and I stand by that prediction, although I thought it would happen sooner than it may. Oh, I'll make the predictions. But to give a timeline is as, about as fruitful as a fortune teller or fortune cookie, for that matter, predicting when you'll win the lottery. I've interviewed countless experts over the years on their predictions regarding precious metals, and I've got to say, you can't make any hard timeline predictions, people, because anything will happen at any given time, so stop it. Don't give a date. The odds are not good either way. Should you own physical gold and silver as a hedge against a soft dollar? First of all, is the dollar soft? Really? You can own physical gold and silver if you want to, I suppose. But on what planet will you be spending those metals or coins on commodities that you buy and need every day? Not this planet, not anytime soon, probably not in your lifetime. The only way you'll use gold or silver coins as a commodity to buy and sell is if it becomes cool to do so, or if Apple decides to make an iGold or iSilver coin. It is just not going to happen. Now, I think everyone, in a sense, should own gold and silver only because they are a great accoutrement with regard to fashion and jewelry, etc. Home accents in gold and silver, wherever you can. Anything you can plate with these items. That, perhaps, would drive the price up or keep it up should it become a trend to own these metals for vanity purposes. Has gold been coupled to commodities such as oil? Well, recently Frank Holmes said that with $40-ish oil, gold is doing very well at its current price. We really shouldn't complain. However, using the logic presented in that statement, when was oil last at $40 a barrel? Let's go with 11 years ago in 2004. Since Frank is using oil and gold in a marriage of sorts, let's now take a look at the price of gold in 2004. I did some quick research and I came up with $435 an ounce approximately at some point during that year for the shiny metal that augments the watch that I'm wearing right now. By that logic, the logic that well-respected analyst Frank Holmes is using, and I say that in sincerity, and I'm not going to dispute that logic, gold is currently doing very, very well at $1,150 an ounce. But again, using this logic, gold is doing so well that it really doesn't belong where it's at. The coupling logic that Frank is using should have gold well below my own prediction of $900 an ounce. Of course, gold is currently at $1,150, and if you own it, perhaps you should now sell it because it doesn't belong where it's at. It never belonged permanently at these rates because it was and is coupled to oil for some reason, and perhaps now it belongs at $400 or $500 an ounce, not where I predict it will be at 900 Take your profit. Those of you who are in it to win it, take your profit. There's a huge disparity between gold and oil right now, and if you bought it higher prices than it's at now, if you bought it 12 13 14 15 1600 $1,700 an ounce, maybe it's time to take a loss. There's a huge disparity, like I said, between gold and oil right now. Something is way overbought. You can't eat gold and silver. You can't run your automobiles on it. There's nothing you can do with gold other than wear it or adorn your faucets with it. Even if it's the world's oldest currency, we don't live in that world anymore. The U.S. dollar as a world currency will survive, no matter what the Chinese and the Russians and others may or may not have in mind. Why? I have no idea for certain. 
Because English is still the international language of aviation? Because dollars are preferred currency for trading in places such as Cuba, Venezuela? Because the greenback is still key? Because when speculative oil and precious metal prices fall, you've got a strong dollar. Because it's in everyone's best interest with regard to banking and or the Fed if the dollar is strong. And if gold was ever manipulated up so as to draw in those latter-day speculators, it has been taken down by those same people that caused the manipulation, and they're far from being done with it. And what's even more interesting about the downward trend of gold is that it's not overdramatic. It's paced. It's less dramatic than the upsurge itself. It's less volatile. A pace decline in prices means that there is less volatility and a market perhaps you can trust. Shorting gold in the short term may be viable. And there are those that are doing it. Betting on gold in the long term? Well, that was done. And it began 7 to 10 years ago or more. And that cycle seems to be over. I don't think we've seen our bottom yet. And unlike the real estate market, which did bottom, it may not come back. Gold may not come back. Why would you go back to something that is out of favor? Once burned, twice shy? Why would the fund managers and institutions that banked on gold taking heavy losses for their clients, why would they bring them back in again and further risk their credibility, their reputations, and their savings? No one smart would. Isn't there a supply and demand issue with regard to gold and silver? Isn't that in play? Okay. There's a supply and demand issue if there is no gold or little gold. And it is true. It's not like you can make any more gold. Whatever gold is on the earth is a finite amount. You can't make more, and what exists won't disappear. Therefore, it's finite. However, has all the gold that there is on the planet been mined? Mm, I don't think so. So I'm going to say no. There's gold in them, thar hills, rivers, and valleys in many, many places. I know it. It's been pointed out to me by many gold exploration companies that have not taken the gold out of the ground. They all had a plan for their discoveries, and that plan is to prospect their claims and properties, identifying a resource and parlaying that resource to the major miners for development and mining. But guess what? Those miners, those big miners, have been scaling back, laying off, cutting back production, investing of their properties. I'm not saying that all the smelters and mills have shut down. No, not true. As long as there are weddings and watches being made in gold-plated Rolls Royces, there will be gold production. And there are some industrial and medical uses for gold as well. Let's not forget that, but not like silver. Would gold be a proper hedge on a collapsing dollar? Well, no one really wants the dollar to collapse. Not when we are growing our population in this country. Not when we've been printing so many of these dollars. And certainly when the euro is in difficulty, which it is. And the ruble is in difficulty. None of these things have any sort of serious chance of being a threat on that dollar. Oh, sure, yes, the Chinese are going to boost the value of their own yuan. But they can do that. They have a massive population that hasn't traded for, for years, for decades, for centuries. They can do that without any threat to the dollar, but they will not threaten their own holdings in U.S. dollars by attacking our market, a market that has supported them, I might add. This currency and culture and country is so resilient, it's nothing short of amazing. Perhaps one day we'll have less actual paper cash on our person. Many of us do now, relying on bank cards and such. But will we trade in anything other than a fiat or digital fiat currency like the dollar? I'm going to go with no. Gold is not finite enough. We can't account for all of it. We'll never be able to. It's not like accountants can go through it and quantify all of it. Let us all know where it lives. It's shiny and fun to look at and play with. But as long as we don't eat it 
or clothe ourselves with it. As long as the local 7-Eleven doesn't take it in exchange for a smoothie, all it is is a speculative metal, and it has no business trading where it is today or last year or certainly the year before that. No business. What about platinum and palladium? Other precious metals that are more rare than gold? Those are industrial metals that are used in automobiles and machinery. There's a lot less platinum and palladium than gold. The price of these metals should trade higher, and I believe they won't experience the kinds of lows that gold will. Lows that were in play when, again, oil was at $40 a barrel or less. And that's where oil is heading again. Why will oil head back to where it once was? Because really there's plenty of it, and the speculation play that the market manipulators deployed is done. It's not sustainable anymore. You can only sustain a market con for a while before it runs out of steam. And oil had no business being over $100 a barrel, not with so much of it available. We really don't know when it will run out. And if it's gone, perchance, in 100 years, which I seriously doubt it will be, that's nothing that we need to think about today. And in 100 years, most likely, we'll be using oil a great deal less than we are now. The demand will be so much less. So, boom, cheap oil indefinitely. Hallelujah. What's not cheap, really? Smartphones. They are not inexpensive items, and yet practically everyone I know has one or two. And they'll replace them every few years or so, and they can be as much as $700 a pop. And we use them all the time. These phones and quasi-handheld computers are devices that we use. We don't use gold like we use a smartphone. And Apple stock is at $124 a share. And Google, something we use perhaps more than Apple devices, is at $564 per share, while gold stocks are really quite dead. When will gold stocks return? When every Apple device is plated with gold. That's when gold stocks will return. The things that everyone must have because they want them, because they're enticed to buy them, like the new iWatch, those things we'll be buying and putting our money into cheerfully. We will stand in line to buy these items. We will sweat and freeze to buy these items. Look, oil has a lot less wiggle room and so does silver. Both have more than halved themselves during the couple of years. The gold and silver ratio along with oil is not so in sync with each other that these halving trends are going to simultaneously occur with gold. But it will happen. I don't know exactly when, but it will happen. There's plenty of downward headroom left for gold than oil and silver right now. So you won't see those dramatic downtrends with oil and silver. A lot of that's taken place already. It may continue to happen, but gold has a lot more room. Wiggle room for loss. I expect silver and oil to level off before gold does completely, and yet I won't put a timeline on any of these predictions. Now, I've covered gold as a commodity and a stock during the rise and now the fall of it. I can only hope that those of you that have been following this journalist have been wise with your investment dollar. I've never recommended that you purchase anything. You do that entirely of your own volition. I will suggest this to you as you may or may not exit gold and or silver. I may suggest that you consider real estate. Why? Because we're not making any more land and people need to live somewhere and the borders are not closing in this country anytime soon. On the contrary, they're opening up both to wealthy and displaced foreigners alike. These people have to live somewhere, either in existing housing or housing yet to be built. Weather will bring many thousands of individuals to the South and the West just as it's always done. In addition to foreign investment and speculation, our own indigent population will move to a warmer climate, or shall I say continue to move. And it's not an unrealistic scenario for those socked in by snow and cold this winter. It's doable, and this last winter has been indeed memorable. 
So many factors in play for real estate, and in the country's largest urban areas, areas such as New York and even beautiful Los Angeles, there's an upward trend in real estate sales and development. People are coming in. The real estate bubble did happen, and it popped back in 2008-2009, and yet it's quite possible that the comeback after the mortgage lending shakeout is sustainable, given opportunity for foreign investment coming from all over the world. Asia, India, China, Latin America, Russia, and I predict Europe. Sure, anything can happen during these next weeks, months, and years, but as long as I have to use some form of American currency, whether it be coin, cash, or digital dollars, gold will never be worth what it is today again. And when our cash is no good, the Lord help us, it won't matter anymore. Is it time to sell? You be the judge. I'm Ellis Martin, and this has only been my opinion. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.